I grow up, I want to be an engineer. When I grow up, I want to be an author. When I grow up, I want to be a fine art thief. When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. Welcome to My Dilettante Life, a podcast where I talk to experts about what it really means to be a professional fill-in-the-blank, hosted by me, lifelong dabbler, Hannah Binder. Uh, so thanks for joining me here today. We have Karen Lang and Emily McMakin. Um, we are here to talk about your professional experience in the world of architecture, um, so if you could each just uh, start off by giving us a brief introduction and, and a little bit of your professional background. Sure. I'll go first. This is Karen. It's so great to be here with both of you. This is amazing. We were talking just a minute ago about how the uh, silver lining of the past year and a half in the pandemic is just this ability to connect with each other wherever we are. So we're actually calling in from three different places, which is amazing. I'm located here in Portland, Oregon. It's nine o'clock in the morning here and um hannah's in germany and emily i think you're in in the east coast right correct yeah so this is pretty amazing so yeah um i've been uh graduated now i graduated in 2000 from the university of notre dame with a degree in architecture bachelor's degree and so i've been out of school and in the profession for about 20 years which sounds like a heck of a long time but has gone by really quickly so I've been here in Portland for 15 years. I work currently at a small, mid-sized firm, we're about 15, 16 people, downtown Portland, um, called Waterleaf Architecture. And we do a lot of different types of work. We do commercial work, residential work, community stuff, transit, uh, wineries, higher education, a lot of different types of things, which I really enjoy. Prior to that, I lived in New York City for about six and a half years, worked at a couple different firms there, just getting some different experience. So, And Emily? Um, so I, this is Emily. Um, yes, I am in Asheville, North Carolina. So I've been here for 10 years. Um, I graduated, so I have a bachelor's in architectural engineering from University of Texas, and then I uh, got a master's out in Denver, University of Colorado Denver, in, so an MR. Um, I graduated in 2009, right in the recession, which was fun. So I actually worked two years in um, a specialty subcontractor doing project coordination and management. Um, and actually, which was a great, you know, got to kind of see the opposite side of stuff for a bit. Um, moved to uh, Asheville and actually found a job right away, which we were very worried about. And I've been at the same firm uh, for 10 years, actually on the 8th, and um, just became principal here. So we're a smaller firm. As of like three months ago, we have five people now. We were, you know, for the first five or six years, just the two of us. And we've just grown quite a bit since then. So we do a little bit of everything, uh, just as you do, but smaller scaled versions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did stalk your company website. Uh, I'll be perfectly honest. <laughs> Go for it. Please take a look. Yeah. 
Great. So the purpose of my podcast, um, My Dilettante Life, is to talk with folks about their professions and specifically um, careers that I think a lot of people kind of dream about that seem really cool and exciting um, and maybe a little bit outside the, the norm for what a lot of people consider their professional experience. Um, I would definitely have to say that architecture was something that, you know, I've never not even I've never even like dabbled in it as a field, um, but it has always been something that seems really aspirational and amazing to me. Um, I'm sure the reality isn't like 100 percent glamour and like, you know, designing falling water with, you know, a literal waterfall going through a building. Um, but we're here to just kind of talk about your individual experiences as architects. Um, you can get into the nitty gritty as much as you'd like. Um, and just to kind of give folks a peek into um, your, yeah, your daily lives and some of the things that might be surprising um, for folks to learn about what it means to be an architect. Um, and, you know, maybe the, the not so glamorous things as well. So my first question for you is um, kind of how you ended up getting into architecture. Is it something that you dreamed about doing when you were a kid? Um, what was your opening into working in this field? Um, I can, this is Emily, I'll start with that one. Um, so it's actually kind of funny. I used to play trumpet, as you might remember, because I played with your brother. Um, but uh, I decided I did not want to march. So I dropped band my sophomore year. You were not allowed to have open period in your schedule. So I was like, I don't want to. I remember I really liked my English teacher, didn't want to rearrange my schedule. I was like, I like to draw. I'll take this drafting course and fell in love with it. I ended up taking every drafting course they offered at the high school, um, ended up TAing for the class, and I was just, I was like, this is what I'm going to do, and, uh, you know, went to college with a game plan of getting a master's, and so got undergrad in something similar, um, you know, entered college thinking, oh, everybody knows what they're going to college for. Four, and I found out I was a complete rare bird that had like this whole, you know, plan set out. And, um, but the more I look back on the things that as a child that I, like, I loved Egypt. I thought forever I was going to go into archaeology. But if I look back on it, it wasn't so much that I liked Egypt. I liked the runes. I liked the buildings. I liked, that's what I gravitated towards. I would sit with notebooks and create houses, like hideaways, and just, like, sketch them out. It's like, you know, I loved Legos. Like, there's all these things that, like, if I look back, it's like, wow, I always gravitated towards kind of the built environment type of stuff. So it was, it was great that I fell into it in high school and could just go, yep, this is what I'm going to do. And I just kind of set a plan and... Yeah. And here you are. Here I am. <laughs> so. that, I'm, I'm like nodding. You can't see this, but I'm totally nodding my head like crazy in agreement with this story because I, I can relate to that completely. So similarly, so we, just for your listeners, Hannah, we all went to the same high school in a small mm-hmm. town in New Mexico, some years apart, but that's, so we have a similar background. Um, and I also ended up with a free period my senior year. 
And similar, I was like, I don't know what to do with this. I'll take this drafting class. I don't know if it was the same teacher. I cannot remember the teacher's name. Older gentleman. Older gentleman. Or not older, like crazy hair. Maybe. I think he had glasses. I don't yeah. know. It probably it's, was the same. It person. started with an F, but I could probably. Yes, I think out. it was the same guy. I mean, yeah. I was a few years ahead of you, but um, anyway, I took this drafting class, and same thing. I always loved art and drawing, and loved art class and making stuff. But I think that one semester of this drafting class kind of showed me that it was sort of art with a purpose. Like you could actually get something out of what you were drawing. And somehow the way the, it was just hand drafting, you know, with pencils and T-squares and things like that. But somehow you were drawing something that was real or could be built from, there was like a purpose to it. And that really caught my attention too. So that's very funny that we have that same experience. But I only had that one semester and then I went off to college. um, And I think growing up where we did, everybody was sort of a, a scientist or an engineer it's mm-hmm. national laboratory is is there in in los alamos and so it was just kind of expected or for me it's like well that's what i'm gonna do right i will be some sort of engineer or scientist and that's everything i was exposed to that's what everybody's parents did and so i went initially into the engineering program at notre dame which was an eye-opener for me because in high school i loved physics, you know, A plus, loved chemistry, A plus, like I was such a star student in all these calculus, not to toot my own horn, but like I was, I did well at the high school level, but when I got to the college level, it was like, oh, this is not, this is not as fun anymore. (laughs) It like got really hard and, and difficult. And you went from a class of 20 kids to a class of 300 kids and it just wasn't the same environment. And so I, I kind of struggled through those freshman engineering courses um, and and I got to the end of the year and I was like, I don't think this is for me. And I was sort of struggling with that. Like, this is what I always thought I would do, but I, I kind of didn't like it. And so I was like, well, what do I do now? And I remember going to a sort of counselor, freshman advisor type person, and, and she was like, you can do this work but do you want to? I was like, I don't want to. And so it was this sort of like, oh no, (laughs) like now what? But um, at Notre Dame, they have a wonderful architecture program. And part of what, part of the program is, is traveling abroad to Italy your third year. And that sounded exciting. And I was like, I wonder, you know, I remember taking this drafting class. I was like, I'm going to just check that out. So I ended up changing majors in my second year and came into the architecture program and and instantly my grades went up and I just enjoyed everything about school again. It was definitely the right move. Um, so I kind of came at it in a little bit of a roundabout way, but similar to you, Emily, everything looking back that I enjoyed as a kid or enjoy now, like Legos puzzles, like jigsaw puzzles, crossword mm-hmm. puzzles, like any sort of puzzle, because that sort of your brain, like architecture is really puzzles. Um, Tetris. Yeah, Tetris, like anything that is spatial and solving problems, like those are the same skills that we use today. So looking back on that, it definitely all aligned. You know, my interest in art combined with my interest in physics and engineering, but only at a certain level, because once you go beyond that, like that's when you call your engineer 
right? That's when you call instructor <laughs> engineer for so. help. Like, <laughs> I only need to know just enough. Um, so it really combined my love of history and art and the science it, and math, everything combined into one thing. And that's, that's when it kind of clicked for me. So, yeah. Like, so what you're both saying is that I need to um, hunt down whoever was teaching that. drafting <laughs> in the late 90s, early 2000s at Los Alamos High School yeah. and give him a gold star. Yes, yes. whoever that guy was. He was so great. great. <laughs> uh, I actually, you know, on two things that, you know, to you know, agree with, per se, uh, you know, they told me, oh, if you're going to go into architecture, take a bunch of art courses. Mm-hmm. I don't think that was actually, I thought that was actually kind of useless, truthfully. I, I did it. I took a bunch of art courses yeah. in high school, whatever. But um, the problem with art is they're like, create something. And I'm like, but what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like. The nice thing about uh, architecture is it's like, we're going to create this and we've got, you know, all of these parameters, you know, you get parameters to design within. And so then you take all those puzzle pieces and you put them together in something that makes sense. And yeah, only reason I think I was able to stomach my engineering degree is I knew it was not my final it landing place. Like mm-hmm. I'd always, you know, so we won't discuss what I actually ended up making, but I got by on a lot of partial credit in engineering, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a lot of partial yeah. credit. And it yeah. was, yeah, I went from a straight A to not a straight A student. Same. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I could imagine that, you know, like you're both talking about, it's important to have some working knowledge of those things and then to be able to like phone a friend Mm -hmm. as it were when you need the expert to come in. So I might know something about like doing my own finances, but if I have really difficult taxes, I'm going to get a tax professional and I'll keep doing the thing that I love and am proficient at and trust that they will handle that. But I also want to know enough about doing my own taxes that if they are going completely off base, I can say, hey, this doesn't seem quite right. Right. Yes. I think that's any profession. People people don't enough today say, I don't know. And you need to know what you don't know. And in order to know what you don't know, you have to know a little bit of about a lot of things. <laughs> it's hard to know what you don't know if you don't know anything about it. listening to My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder, and today I'm talking with Emily McMakin and Karen Lang about their work as architects. Yeah, so architecture, you you have to learn about, you know, building codes, your local zoning codes, structural, plumbing, mechanical. You have to know about financing of development. You have to know, you have to know a little bit about a lot of different things. Um, when we do residential, we say, you know, we're going to be your marriage counselor. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, you, you <laughs> learn a lot of little yes. things. So that's, that's very so true. Would either of you say that um, there was like a particular person who kind of inspired you to go into this as a career? Um, Or is there someone who you see nowadays as sort of like your role model in terms of what it means to have a career as an architect? You know, that's a that's a really interesting question and a great question, because I think some people would say, yes, absolutely. Like there is this person 
Um, I, for myself, no, I didn't have like, I didn't look at Frank Lloyd Wright or Frank Gehry or any of the sort of well-known architects. I never looked at those and said, I want to do that. That wasn't a thing for me. I think I came into it sort of from my own path. I would say though, now having been in the industry and having worked with so many different people, there are people now that I consider mentors or that have I have just learned from like how to do, I have sort of design mentors and I have project management, you know, that have taught me things in the industry along the way, how to do, because most of what I learned has just been on the job, right? Like in school, you get architectural history and you get this and that, but I never took an AutoCAD class like I didn't even use computers in school right so I'm dating myself here but um, I learned everything I know about the profession on the job really so those are the people that I consider more inspirational mentors is just the people that I've worked with and connected with over time so so in the short answer is no um, not in that traditional sense to be completely, unfortunately, boring for your podcast, I would actually say almost the exact same thing. I didn't even know <laughs> half the names of, as they say, star architects or the people that yeah. are, you know, you look at them for precedence or, mm-hmm. um, but I've also never been that type of person anyway. I'm not somebody who looks at somebody and goes, I want to be them. I look at, it's a very personal, like, what do I want to do? Yeah. I'm going to do it. I've always just... I decide I'm going to do something and mm-hmm. I go and do it. But there are definitely individuals that I've met along the way in my career that I'm like, I look up to them. I, you know, they're 10, 15 years and I go, I want to be there when I'm there. You know, like yes. that's how I want to run my business. That's, mm-hmm. you know, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, there's multiple, you know, for different, different various reasons for each person. So, yeah. Yeah, and I do notice, you know, um, just even thinking about some of the the star architects that you're talking about and the big names you mentioned, you know, um, just because you're in the same professional field doesn't mean necessarily that your lives are going to resemble theirs in any way because they're working in a potentially a completely different arena with different types of projects, different scale. Um, when I used to picture what it would be like to be an architect, um, it was inevitably like mostly white guys walking around in thick rimmed glasses in really modern looking buildings doing really cool artsy but somehow sciencey mm-hmm. things at the same time like it was very stereotypical mm-hmm. um and so as women in the field of architecture i wonder um do you like you don't have to go into a whole deep breakdown of that but do you think that um identifying with someone like Frank Lloyd Wright or Frank Gehry or some of those folks, um, does like gender play a role in not being able to identify as closely? A, a little bit. Um, I definitely would have to say that, yeah, I don't see myself in Frank Lloyd, Lloyd Wright. If you ever actually want to read a bit about the ego of the architect and how um, <laughs> awful of a person he actually kind of was. Enjoy, because that's a rabbit hole. Um, Hopefully there aren't any, like, Frank Lloyd Wright stands in the audience. Yeah, so, I mean, he's got some beautiful structures, but as a person, yeah. eh. Anyway, but I actually think, um, 
again, going back to where we grew up, that kind of comes into some of it. Mm -hmm. And just my upbringing, um, I was, there was plenty of female, it was still probably higher numbers now, but there was plenty of my parents' mothers had PhDs. Mm -hmm. Plenty of, Mm -hmm. and I was definitely raised in a household that if I wanted to do something, do it. It wasn't like, oh, you're a girl also. You, girls can do it. It was just... Yeah. If you want to do it, do it. Like, the, it, we didn't even discuss gender. Like, I don't know. I was the only girl on the high school wrestling team. I don't know if you, you know, so like, mm-hmm. yeah. I was like, if I'm going to do it, I'm just going to do it because I want to do it. And it just wasn't even a discussion. But you are correct in that, like, I didn't see myself in these old men just because I didn't relate to old men. Like, not necessarily because it was a man, but these old, they were so just, they were historical fiction. Just like I don't, I don't put myself in the shoes of, you know, Rosa Parks either. She's female, or you know, I don't put, you know, just or Zaha Hadid. She's like foreign woman in London who is now passed. But um, I don't, I don't know. I just don't put myself in other people's shoes per se. It, if that yeah. makes any sense. No, it does. Uh, yeah. It does. Yeah. I. It's interesting. Being a woman in the field has certainly. We're certainly in the minority. Um, it is changing. I think, you know, I don't know the exact statistics, but it's something like, I'm going to throw a number out there, like 17%, or at least this is what used to be, you know, 17% of licensed architects are women. And it's even less for minorities and even less for minority women, right? We still, there's still a very great gender divide in the industry, which is changing, Um I'm a few years older, and so every year, more and more women are getting licensed. There's more in the industry. But I certainly had very few professional mentors that were women, that are women. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's what you're saying, Emily, is true. As parents, I certainly knew a lot of women with careers in my parent, you know, peer parent group. But once I got into the profession, there was not as many women to look up to because there weren't. That just, the, it's changing. They're just not there. They're just not yeah. there, right? Mm-hmm. And that is, or, or they are you, or dare I say. They are us, right? And that is something I am finding the older I get, the more people I mentor that are younger staff, they are constantly looking for women to look up to in the profession. And now um, I'm very happy to provide you know, that mentorship and, and serve in that role. I've mentored several younger women um, and it's very fulfilling to me to do that. And, you know, I realized like I, I became that person for them, which is very interesting. Um, yeah. In the 10 years from when I first came out here and went to my first AIA luncheon, uh, American Institute of Architects, um, it was probably 80% old men. Mm-hmm. And then spattering of younger individuals, male, female. Yeah. And now um, it's actually probably, I'd say, 70% female and Mm -hmm. a lot younger. There's a huge, Mm -hmm. at least out here in Nashville, there's a huge crew of young female architects. My architectural program was about Mm 50-50, but not necessarily, not all those people get licensed, not all of them end up graduating, and that so it... um, that's a whole nother issue about 
how many people actually end up getting licensed outside of the school. Yeah, but, that's a whole um, other podcast. <laughs> where I still don't see it, though, is in ownership. Yes. That is still kind of the, the old white man. So a lot of the, I see several individual architects who like work out of their house or they don't mm-hmm. have employees, mm-hmm. but, you know, who own companies um, is not, is still seems to be. Yeah. The business side of it. Yeah, you're talking about firm ownership, partners and yeah, firms. Firm yeah, ownership. and that that is changing. Yeah, I will tell you there are a number of times when I have been um, on a job site or walking through a project or something, and with a male colleague, and they other people assume he is the architect. Mm-hmm. Um, even if he's not, even if he's just like. I was walking through one time with like someone from the contractor team who was in nor- not in like construction gear, but just like normal stuff, you know, in a meeting or something. And they were talking to him as if he was the architect. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm over here. He's like, Oh no, this is who you need. He was very, very clear. He was like, no, this is not me. You need to talk to her. And that happens all the time still. It does. That I, I'm not seen by default as, as the architect. So and even as even if I see the increase in architects, females in architecture, I'm still, you know, we go, like I said, to plenty of meetings with multiple engineers, mm-hmm. multiple developers, mm-hmm. and I am very often the only female the in the only room one. with a that's, that's bunch of the, old white men. Yeah. It is a bunch of old white men. Yeah. Still, 90% of the yeah. time. <laughs> and things may be changing, but it sounds like there are certain areas where the change is kind of lagging behind other areas. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. And I, I was just actually on a job site yesterday walking through. I have a project under construction. It's an affordable housing project here in Portland. And um, we need more of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, actually. <laughs> so yeah, so do we. It's happening. We're, we're working on a, a couple in our office, which is great. Um, and I'm walking through, and it's it's in the phase of the construction where it's framing. I mean, it's going to be six floors or up on the fifth floor wood framing. So it's just going. They're just like cranking it out, which is wonderful. So I go there once a week to have a meeting with a contractor and do a walkthrough and send a field report, kind of just check that they're building things, you know, the right way. Things are in the right place kind of thing. Or if there's any coordination issues, which there always are. Um, But I was walking through and taking some pictures and there was a young woman who was working, I think, for one of the subcontractors, framer or plumbers, I'm not sure who. Um, and she stopped me and she said, who, who are you with? Like, wh- who are you walking around with? And I was like, oh, I'm one of the architects. She's like, I love that. That's so exciting. I get so excited when I see one of us on the job site. And she meant a woman. And I was like, me too. I get so excited when I see a woman on the contracting side, because that's even more rare when you see women on the construction side of things. So we always get very excited. We like high five each other. Like, yeah, you oh, yes, girl. very much. So you kind of become, there's like two, there's, I have one female structural engineer and there's one of the engineers on my plumbing, mechanical, electrical side. Mm-hmm. And you always kind of make a like, hey. Yeah. See ya. <laughs> I will say though, and this is funny, back to what you were saying, Hannah, about like the image of an architect um, I will say I, I do wear glasses. I do wear a lot of black um, just because it's easy. And uh, right, Emily just put on her glasses. Yeah. I don't need them for close up. <laughs> Time when I most 
feel like an architect, like capital A architect, is when I'm like, have my hard hat on and I'm carrying a big roll of drawings. You know, it's like oh, a, yeah. the roll of drawings is like drawings. a power, yeah. a power thing. That's it. I'll go and pick them up from we're <laughs> round the corner from the print shop. So I'll like, yeah, I'll walk over there because I need to get out of the office for a moment and pick them up. And I'm like, got them on, slung on my shoulder, and I'm like strutting. I'm like, yeah, I got my plans. That's it. <laughs> and you just need this, like the stock photographer yeah. there to take a yeah. picture of you to put it under the folder, like yeah. architect. Yeah. I mean, that is so, true. But so it's true. The, then I want to ask you both, um, what are some of the most common misconceptions that you find other people have about your job? How much money we make? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we don't make as much as you think. We should have stayed in engineering if we wanted to make money. I mean, because yes, that, yes. that is true. Engineering or construction, that's, I mean, yeah, developing, that's where the money is. Our money is not in architecture. That's a very good point. We don't do it for the paycheck. And um, also then how much a set of Houseplant commercial people seem to be kind of expecting it um, because you can buy really not well done for using polite terms mm-hmm. house plans online for mm-hmm. you know hundred dollars. People are like, why can't you guys do that? Yes. And I'm like, I'm not just you know there. This is six months with you or four months yeah. with you, and also timeline. People don't understand. They're like. So I'll get a phone call. Mm-hmm. We would like to break ground in a month. I have a builder ready to go. And I'm like, um, yeah. <laughs> we can probably have you a set of plans in about four to six months. And they're like, yeah. what? And I'm like, yeah. And that's that's when we weren't even like slammed. We're slammed right now. I'm like, it's it's a process. It, you know, and mm-hmm. but I wonder too, so like Emily, you mentioned um that there's kind of this gap between people who actually go to architecture school and those who actually end up then becoming licensed architects. So what are some of the misconceptions you might encounter in people who want to go into architecture as a field or just like, you know, maybe say say things to you about like, oh, I could do that. I would love, insert, you know, stereotype here. Um, I'd have to say that... uh... You're going to be drawing bathrooms a lot more. You know, everybody thinks you have to put in your dues. You know, everybody thinks they're going to come in and they're going to draw these $3 million beautiful homes. That's what I'm going to do. And some do. And you do get to that point. We do some of those. But we also draw bathroom facilities that are literally CMU block buildings for the park systems. Or we do a lot of, like, 20 by 60 CMU block buildings that house mechanical equipment mm-hmm. for a water treatment plant. Mm-hmm. It's not all like sexy work. And guess what? Which ones pay better? Exactly. The bathroom building. Yep. <laughs> not the because they're, they're yep. state projects. So not every project is these grand, um, you know, state. Glamorous. Yeah. Um, you know, you're not going to just be doing skyscrapers. Most people don't do skyscrapers. I mean, I guess if you want to go to New York and do all of that, but most of us are doing, you know, the the hairdresser in the strip center so they can get a permit set that's mm-hmm. just making sure that it meets code. Right. Like, there's a lot of very unglamorous drawing stuff. And so, but with any job, there's the 
tedious. Actually, sometimes I enjoy this because I can just do some code. That's my engineering brain thing mm-hmm. that kicks in. And mm-hmm. I oh, just do a little quick code analysis and you actually finish something quickly and it goes out the door and you're like, I completed something. It yeah. feels good and it goes away. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, every job has those mundane type things, I guess. It's, it's true. Yeah. yeah. That's a, it's a thing that we always joke about is like bathroom details. Like I cannot tell you how many bathrooms I've drawn in the last 20 years, but they're important. <laughs> I mean, it's like they got to be there and they, they got to work. Right. And you'll know if you're in a one that's badly designed. So. Have you always wanted to learn more about a thrilling, weird, or mysterious job? Do you know someone who would be a great interview subject? Feel free to reach out with suggested topics or the name and contact information for potential guests, with their permission, of course. This show isn't limited to interviewing people who are experts in things I've tried. I'm happy to feature the various interests of my fellow dabblers. Um, I think something that um, I, I just wanted to echo the like architecture timeline is very different. Like we work on architecture time, which is like measured in months and years, not days and weeks, right? Like this housing project that I've am working on that I mentioned is under construction. We started this project five years ago. Um, like we have every job is assigned a project number and it's based on the year. So this has a 2016 job number. Um, and it, it got held up in funding sources because it's affordable housing. It has federal funding. It has state funding. It has this and that and banks. And it was tied up in that for a very long time. And so we can be on a project for years. I mean, some of these smaller things, you know, they're in, they're out. There's a permit set. You're kind of, but we get very in, invested because it's like a, it's like a child. Like I, by the time this project is done, I will have worked on it for seven years, you know, not consistently because it went on hold and it came back and it, you know, but we get very attached to these buildings and it's actually difficult. It's like letting your child go. It's like when, when it's done and it's not your building anymore and like you turn over the keys, so to speak, and then it's someone else's like, but but that's mine. You know, like I have this sense of ownership, like I drew it. I, you know, it's mine. Um, and so that's sort of a funny thing that I didn't really anticipate either. Like just that sense of ownership that comes when you actually put so much of your time into this thing. We do a lot of restaurants and breweries and, you know, uh, we've had definitely some of the restaurants. I say we, Again, like it's my restaurant. It's not my, I don't have anything once the business, you know, you know, that have gone out of business or something and you feels like personal, you know, sadness. Like how could I have done that better? And I'm like, this has nothing to do with the architecture of of the restaurant or, you know, the, and it was the bathrooms. Yes, it was the bathrooms. There you go. And you know, what's also funny is like, if you were talking to a, a contractor or a builder, like they would say the same thing, like, that's my building. I built that, you know, my team built that. And so we, everybody that touches the project has, I think, the sense of ownership. And so that is what I love so much is it's just, you are really working with a team of people. I mean, it's very rare that, that only one person 
does it, right? That doesn't, it's not possible. You have this whole team of people that you're working with. You have the design team, which involves engineers and, you know, you the technical people, design people, and then it goes to the contractor and they have their framers, plumbers, you know, all the people that have touched a project, it's way more than you would think. And so that's something that, um, like architect, the architect role is just one tiny piece of the puzzle, right? Putting an, a building together and making it. Yes, especially if you're doing work. any, you know, affordable housing, you know, then you have, yeah. there's usually other, there's the developers, you have mm-hmm. a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. Um, you also very often with projects like that, you know, have community involvement yep. and you have, you know, committees. So we mm-hmm. do a lot of uh things for churches and you get a lot of committees. Yeah. So actually a, a big part of, you know, when we're trying to sell ourselves to a client, new proposal, meeting them is we talk about a lot about the team we're going to build mm-hmm. and how we want to work together and we're creating. And it's, it's very weird. You know, sometimes on houses we get a, the builder takes the house, the plans and just disappears. And I'm like, did it get finished? Yeah. Did it? And it's so weird. Right. It's like your <laughs> child ran away. And like, you know, and then you're driving along the road one day and you're like, huh, that building yeah. looks vaguely familiar. Yes. yes. So I like working <laughs> with builders I know because they mm-hmm. they tell me we communicate actually, with you. We tell yeah. them to bring the builder in early and on the projects yes. so that one for cost reasons and all sorts of other stuff. But um yeah, it, it's very odd when there's a couple houses that I'm still like, I have no clue. They they got their final plans and they just poof. It doesn't happen on the like commercial. When, when we say commercial, we mean restaurants, you know, stuff yeah. like that. That doesn't help happen because you have so much construction administration afterwards. So also, yeah, we don't just design them. We then continue through with the project that is one thing i did definitely didn't really understand is how much after you draw mm-hmm. the, it, how mm-hmm. much of your job is actually or how little of your job is actually drawing you know, especially yes. once you get higher up you you do very little drawing you mm-hmm. might sketch something and then you hand it off to somebody and i don't have to do the bathroom details right you right. do the bathroom details <laughs> I have to sit for two hours and send out emails and find specs. Yeah. So, but it also, so it sounds like um, based on what you all are talking about, um, architecture is not something that's good for people who have issues with delayed gratification, just given (laughs) the timelines you all are talking about. Um, And also like I'm hearing kind of a paradox where you do have a sense of ownership. You put a ton of time and energy and maybe like emotion and parts of yourself into these projects. And yet you don't technically own it. And you also have to work within the parameters of someone else's wishes and, uh, and like things like funding that probably put a lot of constraints Mm -hmm. on you. Whereas if you lived in some ideal world, where you owned like the entire project and didn't have any like money limitations, you might design something completely different. That's very true. And that's actually something I kind of, I kind of like about the profession is having the parameters, like having a boundary, because I think I work better with rules because if I was just left with a clean slate, 
like, here, go design something. I'd be like, I don't know what to do here. Like it's, I need some constraints put on me. And I think that's, um, it works both ways. I mean, sometimes it's like a real nightmare. Like I, I can't give you what you want within your budget. Like this is not going to work. But other times I really appreciate having these boundaries and constraints because it's, it focuses the creativity you know, sometimes having too much free reign is like, I, I get stuck, I get paralyzed by that. So I like to be having these rules to work within. I think that actually, yeah, we were actually just recently, I was helping some of the uh, other ladies, we're actually a firm, we have one gentleman and three, other, there's five of us, and there's nice. four women. Here, Good so. for you. But um, about how I build a proposal for homes and I was telling him when anybody tells me they'd like to see options the price just because <laughs> that gets hard when they're like I don't really know I'd like to see options I'm like okay because mm-hmm. it, it takes a lot more but um you know kind of going back to what you're saying with the the ownership and the funding one of the hardest things is budgets are tight and sometimes you design this really cool thing that in in reality it was supposed to be kind of a focal point or a lot of other design decisions were made off this one thing maybe it's an entrance or maybe it's a a cool light i mean it's amazing what you can take ideas from truthfully anything can be your inspiration but it'll get cut per funding reasons Mm -hmm. or i uh Another reason to have a good team is you get a builder in there that goes, well, I can do this for cheaper. And you're like, it was being built this way because they're only looking at the plans and they're not considering all the rest of the background of like, there was a lot of reasons these decisions were made and the owner Mm -hmm. might've forgotten. And then they're like, wait, this doesn't fit anymore. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's because you let them talk you into this $2,000 cheaper option and it don't fit anymore. And right. so um, I used to get my feelings hurt up front when, you know, they'd cut something. I was like, but that was really cool. That was going <laughs> to, and I, you know, I've definitely, it doesn't hurt my feelings as much anymore. So I'm like, well, darn it. That would have been really cool. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the VEing, as they call it, value engineering, can really hurt because that's where they come in and they actually price everything out that you've designed and just cut out all the cool stuff. And you're like, yay, we got a box with some lights now. <laughs> but they're really cool lights. Really cool lights. Lights are expensive. That, I did not know how expensive light, lights were. Just Ridiculous. You'd be really surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. So. So can you all tell me um, what, and I know, Emily, you kind of already alluded to, you know, there are cool aspects and tedious aspects of of any job. Um, Could you think of maybe either a highlight or a low light or something that was really surprising to you um, about about your day-to-day work in architecture? You know, I can... Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was just saying something that's surprising to me that never gets old is when you I mean we spend our days you know drawing lines we're really like it's just information on paper but when that drawing gets turned into a real thing like that never gets old for me because I'm like oh my gosh there's that thing I drew and now it's there like it's 
is real. And so that would surprise me, I think, how exciting that is and how exciting that still is. And the first thing that I ever drew that got built, because sometimes you draw things they don't get built or like you never see them, you know, but I was in New York and it was my first job and I'd only been there, you know, out of school a year or two. And I was, I had been drawing some tile details for a McDonald's at JFK airport in the international terminal, which I think has since been demolished. I don't think it's there anymore. Um, they've changed things now, but that McDonald's was the first thing that I ever drew that I saw get built. And I was so excited when I went there, hard hat, you know, clipboard. <laughs> like I went to the airport just to check it out. And I saw my tile at the yes. McDonald's. I was like, it's real. Like what I draw matters. And like somebody looks at this and built it. And like, I will never forget that McDonald's because that was so, it was just that moment of like, this is, it was like that high school drafting class where like I can draw things that it's art with a purpose, right? Like it just all clicked for me. So that, that never gets old for me. I love going to the job site and I love seeing the reality of what we've drawn. So it's, it's exactly, that's a, exactly what I was going to say. My first project was a secondary door because <laughs> they wanted, there was only a door to like this inner courtyard and the new tenant wanted a door that went to the outside, to the sidewalk also. It's kind of a downtown facade area. And we had to make sure it was ADA compliant because we had some issues with how it sat with the uh, sidewalk outside, the floor on the interior. And it's just around the block from my office. And so I still pass it every day. And anytime I'm walking with somebody new, I'm like, that was my first project. Yeah. I still like, and it, right. it, it's a door. <laughs> it is literally a storefront door. I was like, that's my first project. Yeah. And they actually just redid all those sidewalks. And I was like, but our, we had it all designed out because it was slate. Now it's all concrete and it's all level. And whatever. yeah. But I mean, the, the one, the, the biggest thing to me, not isn't necessarily though the, the building itself, it's um, watching people interact with it. Mm -hmm. So, like, uh, like I said, we've done a lot of breweries and um, and restaurants, and you know, we always, of course, go to them afterwards. And you know, I've definitely a couple times just like sat in a corner and just watched, which is really cool, just to like mm -hmm. because <laughs> humans, you. Don't always do what you tell them to. So you will design <laughs> these things to be used in a certain manner or, you know, uh, walked around or, you know, how you think people are going to use the space. And often they do. Sometimes they don't, though. And spaces will take on completely their own life um, just by how people decide to use them. And I think that's always really cool just to watch the, the people interact with the space itself and the things you've done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I sometimes, um, like we, I mentioned, we do some wineries and, and some of them have like websites or Instagram pages. And so I always follow, follow mm -hmm. the Instagram so I can see like a glimpse of my, my child in the world. It's almost <laughs> like stalking your kid at college or something. It's like, you know, like you want to be on their social media, see what they're up to. So I like follow these 
places just so I can see like how are they using it? like how did they decorate it for Christmas you know how, like there's people on my terrace you know so that's true like how people are using it and the joy of seeing people using it um is really fun it's really fun yeah do, do you feel like you um have learned like lessons about human behavior with their surroundings um just as a result of seeing how people interact in an unexpected way with what you've designed? Um, you know, I have sort of a, a side tangent way of answering that question. I've, I've just recently gone through this very interesting workshop about critical race theory, um, which is a hot topic these days, and critical race theory, how it relates to spatial design, which at first you're like, what is, I don't know, how, how does race affect design work like I don't get that but it was such a powerful series of sessions and discussion it was strictly for architects you know people in the design world and um something that was that we discussed was how people in different communities or different backgrounds different races different genders how people with different backgrounds or life experiences experience space differently and there was a whole study that they've done about um at sorry we just have to take a moment to all gush <laughs> over the adorable dog that emily just brought into I wish our our I was whimpering at my feet yeah. i wish your listeners could <laughs> that's see totally fine this is amazing <laughs> is the dog wearing like a sweater like what's going on here she's an eight week old english bulldog oh my this is freya oh my god Hi, Freya. She gets a little chilly outside. Yes. It is winter. Naturally. So, yes, she has, it says the boss. So. That's just unbelievably <laughs> cute. That's amazing. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's totally worth It's totally worth it. What I was saying is this workshop was so interesting because they did a, a study at a college campus, and they asked minority students, how does this space feel to you? And they would have, like, a lobby or this or that, and, there were some very interesting answers of what felt like white space or what felt like this or that. And it was such an interesting discussion. So I think that has been new for me to think about spaces in that type of way, because we often plan for the end user, you know, and if you're doing a private house, a residential client, like, you know, the end user, right. But if you're doing a public space, a community center, a school, you know, something like this, you often can't predict who the end user will be. And so you have to think about things in a very different way. And we often try to engage with the community, go to neighborhood associations, you know, go to the places where you think the users might be, but that's not always possible. And so it's very tricky because we're trying to anticipate things, you know, how something will be used, but you, you often can't do that or have to yeah there's only so much you you can anticipate yeah so um i did the traditional weighted tables for you know all through college type thing so there was a lot of easily transferable you know uh well these restaurants worked really well because of this Mm -hmm. you know what i have learned what i've really been surprised about is what I touched on before is people don't always do what you think they're Mm -hmm. going to do 
um, which has which has definitely been fun and we will definitely try to guide people and there's definitely a give and take on some of these spaces where you know a client comes to you and they're like we want to do this and we're like that's a really bad idea for x y and z reason (laughs) for like you're gonna have issues with people standing in your lobby or you know when it I always love when I can go you can't because of code because then I just have an out yep but you know some of this is like I'm not in charge of their business plan, and so I do have to use kind of what I know. But at the same time, if they're starting trying to do something creative or new or different, you know, I want to work with them in their business model plan. So as often as people don't do what you're going to expect, people are creatures of habit, you know, to use. And so there are just some things that you're like, you can't. Do that. Or I, I wouldn't suggest, I don't generally tell clients they can't do something unless they really can't, but I, I generally try to suggest additional options. Like if they bring in a sketched out plan, I'll be like, so I here's what you laid out. Have you thought about doing this mm-hmm. because of these reasons? And they're like, oh, yeah, because they hadn't thought about the time of day that people would be there. Or so we do, at least we did at our school took a class on, you know, ergonomics and human nature and how people occupy spaces, but it very much was white centric. As you said, Mm -hmm. I'd actually, that'd be a very interesting talk because we looked mostly at European plazas and like, you know, the, the, uh, how all the German cities were laid Mm -hmm. out with the plots. Is it Plaza? Hmm. Yeah. 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 You know, so we looked a lot about that and how people, you know, move around those spaces for uh, city development and all those kinds of things. But it was very Western, you know, European. Well, and even, I mean, you you mentioned, Emily, with your project, um, like needing to be in accordance with the ADA. And one thing as a geriatric social worker that I've definitely been um, aware of over the last several years is like concepts of universal design mm-hmm. and how to really, rather than just making sure something fits into code, like how do we approach things from an aspect of making it work for everyone and not just assuming that everyone can move easily mm-hmm. and go you know, up inclines easily and has two functioning legs and two functioning arms and a good sense of balance and all of these yep. things. Why not design for you know, uh, someone with a stroller, someone in a wheelchair, someone with vision impairment, you know, like multiple things, because the more accessible we can make it, hopefully the more uncomfortable people can feel in those surroundings. What would you say to either your younger self before getting into this field or someone who's interested in going into the field of architecture? Um, Younger self, considering that I, as a sophomore, I like, I'm like, yeah, keep going, you know, as a sophomore in high school, I was like, I'm going to do this. And I kind of came up with a plan and it's, I've stuck to it. So I'm like, yeah, you know, keep at it on that. But for somebody who wants to get into it, um, I would definitely say, you know, it is a time commitment. I would definitely let them know up front the 
what they're going to be making. I know that sounds silly, but it is a good consideration with how much school costs nowadays. Like, you're going to have a lot of student loans. I know that sounds silly as a consideration, but, it, you know. Um, but I'm very much a, if you want to do it, do it. Like, that's how I've lived my whole life. If you want to do it, try it. And so um, I we do a lot of internships here. So we have a STEM school. So we have high school students that will come in and work for three months during their semester. Or um, So we do a lot of that to help foster people knowing if they want to do it. So, but yeah, I'm, I just tell people, do it, learn about it, read about it. Here's some cool information about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's really good advice about um, uh, internships or mentoring or just, you know, getting yourself exposed to to the profession at a, at a young age. And, and, you know, I've been doing for the last, gosh, like nine or ten years, This there's a program here in Oregon called Architects in Schools, and they pair up design professionals with elementary school kids, usually grades three through sixth grade, third through sixth grade. And I love that program so much. And I, I started doing it, yeah, about nine or 10 years ago, working with mostly third graders, a couple times a second grade class. And there, I mean, you walk into that classroom and you're just like a rock star. Like kids are like so excited to see somebody besides their teacher, number one. And they're like, at that age, everything's possible, right? You know, so, and it's really fun to teach those kids at such a young age, like, this is a career that's possible. And here's, the way I explain it to them is, like, through Legos. Because, like, somebody, yeah, somebody is, like, the master builder, right? Like, somebody comes up with the idea for, like, the spaceship or the castle or, the moon crawler, whatever it is you're building, like somebody has to design that and draw the instructions and tell you how to build it. Right. So like how many gray bricks, what size gray bricks, you know, how, like, where do they go? So the, an architect is like the person who draws the Lego instructions. They're like, Oh, it clicks for them. And the other thing that I tell them is like Ikea instructions. Like when you go to Ikea and you buy the box and you, fold out those weird instructions, like somebody drew those, right? Somebody has to tell you how to put which part where. And so, and that also clicks for them because everybody's seen their parents trying to put together a bookshelf, right? So it's like... The, I don't you, like it. <laughs> exactly. And everybody has like those. And so if you're the type of person that likes to open up the instructions and like figure it out, or wonders, like, how did that thing happen? It's a, I mean, you're on the right track, because there's something that we, I I learned, and this sounds fake, but, like, I truly learn things every single day. I mean, I've been in this profession 20 years. There are so many things I don't know, like we talked about before, and I have a, a need to learn. Like, I'm constantly learning. I'm excited to learn and if you're that type of person that's naturally curious, naturally a, a puzzle doer and a problem solver, and is creative, not just in the creative, like, artsy sense, but in a creative thing, like, I want to create things, like, I am a creator, um, then I think you're the right type of person. Yeah. 
Yes, little kids and career day, we'd always, I'd do my big, yeah. you know, going for my kids' career day, and I'd have my slideshow, and at the yeah. end, I'd show Minecraft, and all their brains Minecraft would be like, oh, another one. Yes. oh my gosh, <laughs> Minecraft, I Minecraft. is perfect. It's so exciting. <laughs> that is perfect. Minecraft is, and I, I'm just recently new to Minecraft, because my son is not old enough to play Minecraft, and so that... I will need to work that into my, with my Legos. Yeah, because Minecraft is perfect because you have the resources, you get to build what you want, you get to build your own house and do all this stuff. So yeah, if you get to kids on a level that they can understand, they're like, oh yeah. And I cannot tell you how many kids, especially little girls will give me the biggest hug at the end of our sessions and say like, I love you. I want to be an architect. And I'm just like, so, yeah, oh to God. come full like, circle yes. from our earlier in our mm-hmm. uh, conversation was one of the reasons I was adamant on doing the career day yes. was so that they saw a female architect there. Yeah. That was actually mm-hmm. one of the, I was like adamant. Yeah. No, I'm like, no, I want to do this. So I've always kind of, yeah. while I was raised like that, I realized where gender roles weren't a thing. I realized a lot aren't. Yeah. So I have mm-hmm. definitely made it a, a point to make myself visible in the schools or yeah. I'm a Girl Scout leader and I, you know, bring the girl, you know, that kind of. Absolutely. So hopefully other people can be, or other girls specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, um, then my last question for you all is what, what do you want to be asked about your experience as an architect? That is such a great question. Um, We have covered a lot of topics already today that I think touch on these things, especially things that you wouldn't expect about the profession or things that you wouldn't know. So, I mean, that's almost the question. I think you've asked a lot of them, like, what, what don't I know? Or what are, what's something that's surprising about your job? Or, you know, I think those are, those are such great questions. So I'm trying to think, give, give me a moment. Let me think of something. Yeah. So uh, just falling back into the little kids, I've got to say some of the best questions I've been asked yeah. are by the kids because yeah. adults kind of have this preconceived or they don't want to ask because they think they know. And as mm-hmm. I said, people don't like to say they don't know something, so they don't ask. Mm-hmm. Um but the little kids, they'll just, you know, fire away. And I don't have any specifics offhand, but they're just, they're funny. You know, uh, they just, they make you think slightly different about possibly things you've been doing. I think that's another reason I enjoy working with the kids is they're, mm-hmm. they'll say anything. So <laughs> I always like to bring yeah. in like a T-square, um, which mm-hmm. is a drawing thing, and ask them what, what they think it's for. Oh, that's great. And... Uh, <laughs> So, I mean, just, I also just like when people want to discuss the profession. Like, they just want to know more. Like, you want to know more, because I am actually very passionate about it. I love it. I still love it. I've, you know, it's not something like, I love going to work. I enjoy my job. I enjoy what I do. And... My husband will tease me because we'll go out to like a band. So this, this is a true story. Went out to watch a show and in the middle he looks over and I'm staring at the ceiling and he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I can't figure out how they don't have a sprinkler system in here. And he's like, can you like turn it off for just 
And I'm like, yeah. no, I, I can't. Yeah. No, I look so, at ceilings everywhere I go. Every oh, yeah. like grocery stores, doctors' offices, libraries. I'm like, I'm always looking. You'd be surprised. Yeah, my favorite places are attics and like basements and crawl spaces because you can see how everything's put together. Um, and not the like, you know, not the things that people. Everybody loves the pretty kitchen. I'm like, can I get in the attic? <laughs> so, but just you know, just wanting to actually discuss mm-hmm. the profession. I yeah. I enjoy talking about it. Yeah, I like talking about myself. So I mean, that always helps. It's, well, that worked out well then here because I wanted to ask you questions. So I'm glad that you enjoy answering them. When I grew up, I wanted to be a children's book author and illustrator. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder. The podcast theme music was composed by Anna Bradley with sound editing assistance from Yuli Anerson. The podcast logo was designed by Ashley Burke with help from model Ivy Bean. Thanks to our guests and to all our listeners for tuning in. If you have follow-up questions for a guest, send them in for a chance to be featured on an upcoming Audience Asks segment. My Dilettante Life is available wherever you get your podcasts, as well as directly at hannabinder.com slash mydilettantelife. That's H-A-N-A-B-I-N-D-E-R dot com slash my dash dilettante dash life. Tschüss!